Whole Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 36, for March 2022. The remarkable Wister sisters, Mary Channing Wister, Frances Ann Wister, and Ella Wister Haynes. Laurel Hill Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and volunteer podcaster. Three Victorian Philadelphia sisters helped make Philadelphia what it is today. The oldest, Mary, petitioned for music in the public schools, more public parks for all, and placement of the Broad Street Line underground. Frances Ann was a founder of the Philadelphia Orchestra and became the city's patron saint of preservation. Without her, there would likely be no old city or society hill. The youngest sister, Ella Wister Haynes, got a late start on her career, but she became the public face and voice of Philadelphia Electric Company for 20 years, especially during the Great Depression. All three of these remarkable women are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. I tell their stories today. About a year ago, I did a podcast called Five Wister Men You Might Not Know. And right then I realized I had to do something similar for Wister women. I decided it would be for Women's History Month of 2022. I had already covered the author, Owen Wister, in an earlier podcast called Easterners of the Old West. And I briefly mentioned his wife, Mary Channing Wister. Shame on me. As I started gathering my research materials, I thought, what have I gotten into? At least with the men, there was a direct family connection. Four sons of William Wister and Sarah Logan Fisher Wister, and one of their grandchildren, a son of their oldest son, William Roch Wister. But when I started on the women, I realized they're scattered among three branches and three generations. And I had initially planned to talk about five, and then I found another one, a sixth one, that I really had to talk about. So to make it easy for me and for you, this podcast is about three remarkable Worcester sisters. I will save the other three for later, because the way things are going, I'll probably find another one by the time I do another podcast on them. My starting point was brief biographies of all sisters on the website of LaSalle University in North Philadelphia. Why LaSalle? Well, if you've been there, you know that it's a suburban-feeling Catholic university. It's just a few blocks from Albert Einstein Hospital, Central High School, and Germantown Hospital. 
Now, take a few seconds, go to their website, lasalle.edu slash map dash and dash directions. Download or click on the interactive map of the campus. Look at the southernmost part of the campus, where Belfield Avenue and Ogans Avenue almost come together at Lindley Avenue. There's a lovely forested area called Worcester Woods Park that extends deep into the campus. Worcester Street runs north and south, just west of 20th Street. Now there's Worcester Hall, where the university store and bookshop are located. There's the Mary and Francis Worcester Home. And Little Wakefield is now the Christian Brothers St. Mushin residence. LaSalle, founded in 1863, took over this property of the Worcester family compound in 1930. They actually moved from the former mansion of Michael Bouvier, great-great-grandfather of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis at 1240 North Broad Street. Now, what do I mean by family compound? Early in the 19th century, there were three large estates centered around 20th and Olney. The oldest, Belfield, originally belonged to portrait painter Charles Wilson Peel, whom I talked about in the podcast, The Birds and the Bees. To the northeast of Olney and Ogans was the second estate, Butler Place. This was owned by Pierce Meese Butler, an enslaver of more than 500 people on his Carolina plantations. Butler was in an uneasy marriage with Frances Ann Fanny Kemble, one of the best-known actresses in the country, and a prolific author and an abolitionist. Their story is monumental. It's been written about and even made into a movie starring Jane Seymour as Fanny and Keith Carradine as Pierce. Now, neither Fanny nor Pierce are buried in Philadelphia, but their eldest daughter, Sarah Butler, married Dr. Owen Jones Wister, and their child was the author, Owen Wister, whom the family called Dan. Fanny's name is still honored at Kemble Park at Ogans and Alney. A third house was Wakefield, This is where William Logan Fisher had set up his woolen mills along streams, which now run under Ogance and Belfield Avenues. At one time, these mills produced 90% of the hosiery worn in the United States. Other houses rose as the family grew. Little Wakefield on the southern edge of the property, home of Thomas R. Fisher and Letitia Ellicott and their four children, and Waldheim nearby. Finally, there was another house simply called the Mansion. Wakefield's William Logan Fisher, a descendant of John Logan of Logan Square fame, was married to Mary Polly Rodman Fisher. She died in 1813 at age 31. In 1826, Fisher purchased Belfield from Peel. That same year, his daughter, Sarah Logan Fisher, a stubborn 20-year-old who was born in Massachusetts, announced that she was going to marry William Wister, age 23, from Germantown. This was against her father's explicit wishes. Wister came from a long line of Lutherans, but he was the son of a Quaker convert. This made him a convinced friend, not a birthright friend. For this reason, Sarah could not be married at meeting, and her father stubbornly refused to allow her to marry at Wakefield. Worcester's uncle Charles allowed them to be married at the Worcester ancestral home Crumblethorpe 
on Germantown Avenue. Sarah Fisher and William Wister were wed by a justice of the peace in the parlor. Clearly visible on the floor of the room where they were married was the aging bloodstain of British Brigadier General James Tanner Agnew, killed at the Battle of Germantown in 1777. Needless to say, Sarah's father did not attend the wedding, but his heart softened some, and he gave the newlyweds the house, Belfield, and 12 acres of land. Sarah would live there the remainder of her life. Sarah Logan Fisher Wister and William Wister had eight children, seven boys and one girl, of whom six survived past infancy. All six served in the military during the Civil War. I told you about four of them in a prior podcast. The son of William Roch Wister, John Caspar Wister, was also in that podcast. Today's podcast concerns William's three daughters, Mary Channing, Frances Ann, and Ella Eustace Wister. I'm going to admit right up front that I am a bit humbled. Because when I give tours at Laurel Hill Cemetery and I stop at the Wister family plot overlooking the Schuylkill in Section J, I point to Owen Wister's grave and I discuss his friendship with Theodore Roosevelt and his contributions to American culture and literature. If I mention his wife, Mary, it's to point out that she was his second cousin and she shared the family name and that through her mother, Mary Eustace Wister, she was descended from William Ellery, a signer of the Declaration of Independence from Rhode Island, and William Ellery Channing, the founder of Unitarianism. From now on, Mary Channing Wister Wister gets equal billing. In fact, from a local perspective, she probably deserves top billing. Born on 30 March 1870 in Germantown, Mary, whom everyone called Molly, was the first child of William Roch and Mary Wister. Her father had built the family house in 1868. It's now used by LaSalle University as its fine arts studio. In April, Sarah Butler Wister, only child of Fanny Kemble and Pierce Meese Butler, instructed her nine-year-old son, Owen Wister Jr., whom the family called Dan, to hike across the fields from Butler Place to Belfield and meet his new second cousin. Twenty-eight years later, Dan and Molly were married. Although Molly's father was a Quaker, her mother was a Unitarian, and she grew up with her mother's beliefs. She spent many days learning at the feet of the fiery abolitionist and Unitarian minister William Henry Furness of Philadelphia's First Unitarian Church at 22nd and Chestnut. Her early education was at home, but then she attended Miss Irwin's school, graduated in 1889 as president of her class. This was the year after her cousin Owen graduated from Harvard Law School. The Agnes Irwin School had been founded in 1869 by a great-great-granddaughter of Benjamin Franklin. Irwin herself later became first dean of Radcliffe College. In addition to her education, Molly spent her spare time involved in music. She played piano, while her younger sister Frances, more about Frances soon, played violin. The sisters frequently entertained visitors. They were occasionally joined by their cousin Dan, who also played piano. She also wrote music, including when she was a teenager, operas, 
which were performed by her friends and well-received by relatives and neighbors. As Molly grew, she realized that she was a feminist and a suffragist and a strong believer in personal involvement in politics. This is more than 25 years before women got the right to vote. In 1893, Molly called a meeting of like-minded community women in the parlor at Worcester to discuss forming an organization to address various social problems. On the 1st of January, 1894, 23-year-old Molly Wister became one of the founders of the Civic Club of Philadelphia. Their purpose was to address both social and political reform issues and to, quote, promote by education and active cooperation a higher public spirit and a better social order. The Civic Club of Philadelphia attracted prominent Philadelphia women, like Alice Potter Lippincott, she's in Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 7, Carolyn Brown Lee, who's in Laurel Hill, Section S, and Egyptologist Sarah York Stevenson, Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section T. Uh, Sarah served as the club's first president. This was during the heyday of women's clubs in the United States. These clubs initially focused on self-improvement. Eventually, they became involved in charitable work and social welfare, pointing toward the progressive movement of the 1890s. The New Century Club was founded in 1877, just after the Centennial Celebration. The Acorn Club followed in 1889, and then the Civic Club in 1894. Since women were not yet allowed to vote, these clubs served as a way for their voices to be heard. And they did not hesitate to work with men's groups to forward their ideals on municipal reform and the concerns of women and children. Initially, the Civic Club had four departments, municipal government, education, social service, and art. Each of these departments operated somewhat autonomously, created its own committees and task forces and its own propositions for change. For example, the Education Department managed subcommittees on public schools, free libraries, free kindergarten classes. The Municipal Government Department included subcommittees on sanitation, civil service reform, police patrons. Throughout her 20 years of service to the Civic Club, Molly twice served as president, as well as treasurer, secretary, vice president, and chair of several committees. During Molly's membership, the Civic Club was responsible for the building of several playgrounds and parks in Philadelphia. They campaigned to clean up the streets. And in 1897, when she was 27 years old, Molly was appointed to the Philadelphia Central Board of Education, the youngest person ever to be appointed and one of the first women to sit on the board. During her tenure, she was responsible for introducing music into the public schools. Her work paid off further in 1905 with the approval of the Philadelphia Public School Reorganization Act. On 21 April 1898, Mary Channing Wister and Owen Wister Jr., better known to friends and family as Molly and Dan, got married. Dan had trained as a lawyer, but he was making his name as a writer. As was the custom of the day, he got top billing in the marriage announcements. But it seems Molly was equally known and respected in Philadelphia. One of Dan's friends had cautioned him in a letter, 
Molly is such a stirrer up and reformer of all things wrong that I am sure she will lead you through pleasant paths onward and upward toward the light we all hope for. Now at first, Dan thought that a woman's place was in the home. He encouraged Molly to drop all of her civic activities. She would hear nothing of it. She just continued doing what she was doing. He even considered moving to New York City just to take her away from her pursuits. But then he heard her speak to a group of school parents, and he realized he should be proud of her achievements. They stayed in Philadelphia, and he changed his mind. He started to give her whatever support she needed. During their marriage, Molly spent much of her time improving the city of Philadelphia while raising a brood of children. Mary Channing Wister Jr., born on 20 September 1899, was known to the family as Baba and later as Marina. Two years later to the day came the twins, Owen Jones Wister, known as Bunny, and Frances Kemble Wister, known as Sister. That's right, she was Sister Wister. Twins were not anticipated, and when someone asked Molly's sister the names of the two new ones, she responded, Owen Jones and Unexpected. Between November of 1893, five years before their marriage, and May of 1902, Owen Dan Wister had published several short stories about his travels to the American West in Harper's Magazine and the Saturday Evening Post. In 1902, he put several of these stories together and published a novel called The Virginian. It describes the life of a cowboy on a cattle ranch and is considered the first true fictional western ever written. It was a huge success. Tellingly, the female lead was a pretty intelligent school teacher from the East. Her name was Molly Stark Wood, a hard worker who did not adapt to the traditional roles of women. The book went through several editions in the first year and has never gone out of print. Soon it was made into a stage play and eventually into movies and television shows. Molly's sister, Ella Wister Haynes, whom I will talk about later, insists that Molly had a great deal to do with the writing of The Virginian. Now that I know about Mary Molly Channing Wister, I can never look at the book in the same way. Speaking of his school marm heroine, Owen Wister writes, quote, Instead of thinking about her first evening dress, Molly found pupils to whom she could give music lessons. She found handkerchiefs that she could embroider with initials. And she found fruit that she could make into preserves. End quote. Owen Wister became nationally famous almost overnight, and he started touring to promote the book. He even traveled with the play when it was first touring. This put a temporary strain on the marriage, but more children were coming. In 1904, William Rochwister II was born. He grew up with the nickname Weenty. And in January of 1908, Charles Kemble Butler Wister, known as Carl, was born. This brood of five youngsters worshipped their mother. They cherished their time together, since Molly was away at meetings so frequently. There was a series of maids and nannies who helped raise them. But showing an unexpected bias, Molly never hired Irish or French help. She feared that they might secretly take them to Mass and surreptitiously turn them into Catholics. In 1909, Dan got sick and he headed out to a special place in the West to recover. Molly continued her civic work on the East Coast. 
But on 12 October 1909, the New York Times had a startling headline on page one that read, Owen Wister dying, with the subheading, Wife hurrying to him in Wyoming on special train. Molly was at a woman's club meeting in Erie, Pennsylvania at the time she heard, and she was preparing to give a speech. Dan did recover, but it took him a year. Molly continued her civic activity. At a city meeting that proposed a surface trolley line be built the length of Broad Street, Molly protested vehemently, insisting that the traction line should be built underground, as was happening in New York City. This, of course, is the Broad Street Line. On the afternoon of 24 August 1913, at their summer home in Rhode Island, Molly called the five children, ages 5 to 14, to her bedside. And she told them she was going to have another baby they had not known she was expecting. She told them that she wanted them to grow up and to be leaders and to always set a good example for each other. That evening, she delivered her sixth child, Sarah Butler Wister, but she developed complications and she died later in the night. Dan was, of course, devastated. He called the children outside, and they sat on a big rock. He said to them, I have a message for you from your mother. It is goodbye. Shocked, all of the children shouted at once, Goodbye? Yes, he said, she is dead. You have a little sister. News of Molly's death reverberated throughout Philadelphia. People of all social stations mourned her passing and celebrated her life. Flags flew at half-mast at the schoolhouses of the 22nd and 42nd wards. The funeral took place at the family home, Butler Place, and Mary Channing Wister Wister was laid to rest on 28 August 1913 in the Wister family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section J, Lots 206 and 207. Molly's obituary started as you might expect. Quote, Word was received here today of the sudden death this morning of Mrs. Owen Wister, wife of the author of The Virginian. End quote. The second paragraph almost made up for it. Mrs. Wister was the most prominent woman in civic betterment work in this city. She was president of the Civic Club, chairman of the Committee on Civics of the State Federation of Women's Clubs, an ardent suffragist, and a director of the Equal Franchise Society of Philadelphia. At its next meeting, the Philadelphia Board of Education decided to name a future elementary school after her. The Mary Channing Worcester School, built in 1925-26, is located at 843 North 8th Street in the Poplar section of the city. It's just across the street from a city park with several basketball courts. In the 1940s and early 1950s, disgraced comedian Bill Cosby attended this school. He was student body president and captain of the basketball and track teams. Mary Molly Channing Wister's legacy is felt today by school children who learn music in the public schools, by families who use any of the public parks she helped establish, and by all who ride the Broad Street subway line. And I will definitely give her a lot more respect on my future tours at Laurel Hill Cemetery.
I talked about William Rochwister last year in podcast number 25, I mentioned that he was buried just off the road near the gatehouse under a large evergreen, but that his stone was turned so you could not read the inscription from the road. I also talked at length about his son, John Caspar Wister, the noted horticulturalist. I mentioned the third stone in the triad was that of Francis Ann Wister, one of his daughters and younger sister of Mary Channing Wister, whose burial place is closest to the tree trunk and whose name on a stone also faces away from the road. Believe it or not, as much influence as Mary Channing Wister Wister had on Philadelphia, her younger sister, Frances Ann, probably had even more influence. Imagine 21st century Philadelphia without the Academy of Music, or the Philadelphia Orchestra, or Society Hill, or Elfrith's Alley, or Old City, or Cobbs Creek Park. It is highly probable that without Frances Ann Wister, none of these iconic symbols of Philadelphia would exist today. Frances Ann Wister, named for her great-aunt, Frances Ann Fanny Kemble, was born either at Grumblethorpe or at Belfield, it's unclear which, in 1874. This was four years after Molly Wister and five years before Ella Eustace Wister. Of the three sisters, she was the only one with curly hair, which was a matter of great jealousy to the other two. Now, while Molly played the piano, Frances played the violin. She developed a passion for music. She performed in small musical gatherings at all of the houses on the Worcester compound, as well as local meetings of various Germantown clubs. Music concerts like this had existed in Philadelphia since the mid-1700s. In 1757, you could get a ticket for $1 at the London Coffee House to hear, quote, a concert of music under the direction of Mr. John Palma. Subscription concerts became fashionable in the 1760s, and then the fortnightly city concerts at the City Tavern. Because of Benjamin Franklin's love of music, he constructed an harmonica, or musical glasses. It's a variation on the glass harp. If you have never heard an harmonica, that's like harmonica but without the H, go to YouTube, search for Harmonica Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. It is a truly ethereal experience, and you will wonder why you have not heard this instrument being played more. John Berent made the first pianofortes in the city in 1775, but music virtually disappeared during the Revolution, except, of course, for the British when they occupied the city, especially their over-the-top Michianza, which Laurel Hill Cemetery guide Tom Keels wrote about in his book, Wicked Philadelphia. And Peter Schmitz recorded on his podcast, Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. I recommend both of those. It was not until 1820 that 85 men organized the Musical Fund Society, with their music hall built at 8th and Locust four years later. Until 1857, this served as the center of all music in Philadelphia. Local players were both professional and amateur, but they did not cover the full gamut of instruments. One time when the society could not find any trombone players in Philadelphia, they had to recruit some from Bethlehem. The idea for the Academy of Music came in 1852, but it took five years to raise the money and construct the building. I covered some of this in podcast number five, Building Philadelphia. 
Now, once the grand old lady of Locust Street opened in 1857, virtually all musical activity in the city moved to that magnificent location. But Philadelphia had yet to develop its own symphony orchestra. The city was apparently starved for symphonic music and welcomed major orchestras from out of town. The New York Symphony Orchestra, formed in 1878, and Boston Symphony Orchestra, formed in 1881. Even Chicago managed to assemble a permanent orchestra in 1891. By the late 1890s, the Boston Symphony Orchestra was appearing in Philadelphia at the Academy of Music ten times yearly, and almost every performance was sold out. In 1899, a group of society women, including 25-year-old Frances Ann Wister, decided to raise $250,000 and create a Philadelphia Orchestra. They failed to raise the funds, and they abandoned this plan only to adopt another. Instead of procuring funds in advance, they took the riskier route of starting an orchestra on faith and hoping for the best to pay the bills. This method worked. In July 1899, members of the orchestra committee headed to Woodside Park to hear conducting by German expatriate Johann Friedrich Ludwig Fritz Schiel who accepted their offer to be initial conductor, and he took the challenge. For the next several months, Scheele attended musical presentations in theaters all over the city, taking notes as he listened to various players. In spring of 1900, the newly formed Philadelphia Orchestra gave a benefit concert for relief of families of the nation's heroes killed in the Philippines. In November of 1900, the first official concert of Philadelphia Orchestra was presented at the Academy of Music. The featured work was Beethoven's Symphony No. 5. In 1904, the Women's Committee for the Philadelphia Orchestra was formed with many names familiar to Laurel Hill Cemetery enthusiasts. Mrs. Alfred Reginald Allen, Mrs. George A. Hune, Mrs. George D. Widener, Miss Frances Ann Wister. Honorary vice presidents included a Biddle, a Cadwallader, a Cassatt, an Ingersoll, a McKean, a Stevenson, and others. It was in this year that the number of guarantors started to increase to the point where the orchestra could be supported comfortably. Eventually, 360 sponsors per season. Gradually, the reputation and the audience of the Philadelphia Orchestra grew. In 1906, Skill took 32 members, what he called a baby orchestra, to the White House to play for President and Mrs. Roosevelt. At the end of the concert, Teddy insisted on shaking everybody's hand and giving words of thanks. Now, in addition to promoting the Philadelphia Orchestra, Frances was joining other women's clubs that worked for the betterment of the city. She developed her style as an outspoken woman with a voice to be heard. It was hard for people to say no to Frances Ann Wister. In 1907, she was elected vice president of the Women's Civic Club, started by her sister Mary several years before. She stayed in that role for the next 49 years, except for 1922 to 1929 when she served as president. She helped push for electric street lighting to replace gas lights and to replace the older horse-drawn carriages with trolleys on Philadelphia's busy streets. 
In March of 1907, Fritz Skeel, the first conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra, died at the age of 54 and was buried at West Laurel Hills Cemetery. I may do a podcast about him in the future. The musical scores that he left behind served as the repertoire for the Philadelphia Orchestra for many years. Another German, Karl Poling, took over the reins of the orchestra from 1907 to 1912 when he suddenly resigned. During this period is when Frances Ann Wister became chair of the Women's Committee of the Philadelphia Orchestra, a position she held until her death. The board of directors had heard good things about a 30-year-old Lithuanian-British conductor in Cincinnati named Leopold Stokowski, and he was quickly hired. Frances Ann had to distance herself from her beloved orchestra in 1913 when Mary Channing Wister died and left six children, aged newborn to 14. Frances Ann and her mother took care of the children for the next several years until Owen bought a home in Bryn Mawr and took the children with him to be cared for by nannies and nursemaids. And when she got back into the orchestra's business, she had a verbal battle with Stokowski, who was eager to move the orchestra from the academy to a yet-to-be-built theater on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. She called him out of order, and he backed down. In 1920, there was talk of turning the 63-year-old Academy into a movie theater, and she swatted away that suggestion also. In 1915, she was one of 14 members of the Permanent Relief Committee that pressured the mayor to aid the distressed poor population. Another thing to thank her for is her struggle to get women appointed to the Philadelphia Board of Education, where her older sister had served honorably. She also devoted much time and energy to insist that women get paid the same as men when they did equal work. Now, I'm going to take a break here and tell you that much of the story from this point comes from a 2018 essay by Mickey Herr. It's from the website Hidden Philadelphia. In 1931, at age 57, Frances Ann Wister started the Society for the Preservation of Landmarks. During the Industrial Revolution buildup of the 19th century, many of the original sections of Philadelphia, what we now call Old City and Society Hill, had been torn down and replaced without regard to history. Frances got tired of hearing people complain about these changes to the city, so she decided to act. She solicited $5,000 from the second Mrs. Cyrus H.K. Curtis, not Louisa Knapp Curtis. She died in 1910. She's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. This was to make her plans happen. During the Great Depression, she was able to hire unemployed draftsmen at very low salaries to restore the old buildings and to redesign, to totally redesign the areas of Society Hill and Old City. In January 1931, during the second meeting of the official committee, the group learned of the possible demolition of the Powell House on South 3rd Street. It had been home to the last colonial mayor and first post-independence mayor of Philadelphia, Samuel Powell, who died in 1790 of yellow fever. The Powell House had been an ongoing topic of conversation in several local newspaper articles as early as 1905. 
The building's owner had been trying to develop this property to better support his manufacturing needs. The house's reputation as the place George Washington danced kept the building's skeleton from suffering any major alteration or the wrecking ball. But throughout the years, the owner had systematically sold off many of the significant architectural features to major art museums and sort of left the rest to decay. But by 1931, he was ill. The house was in complete disrepair. And his nephew had taken over the business and wanted to sell the property to a neighboring taxi company looking to expand their parking lot. Frances Ann took charge. She called together a group of concerned citizens who met in February 1931 at the NSCDA on Latimer Street, the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the NSCDA slash PA, was founded in 1891 by a group of Philadelphia women who were descendants of colonial ancestors and dedicated to honoring the colonial history of the United States. Following on the heels of the United States Centennial in 1876, they built upon renewed interest in America's past, working to, quote, inspire a genuine love of country through preservation of historic collections and buildings, as well as education, and to promote interest in the stories of our nation's founding and development. It was at the 1931 meeting that a new group was formed, the Philadelphia Society for the Preservation of Landmarks, or Phila Landmarks. Their overall mission was to identify and preserve the important structures of the colonial and early national periods still standing in Philadelphia. But their first task was to save Powell House. Under Francis Ann's leadership and before their first official board meeting less than two months later, they made a lot of progress. Men and women from Philadelphia's most esteemed families had signed on as founding members, including some of the same families who had helped start the orchestra 31 years earlier. Biddle, Cadwallader, Lippincott, Curtis, Barnes, Drexel, McElhaney, Patterson, 58 founders in total. A board of directors was nominated, and they made a $5,000 deposit toward the $30,000 purchase of the Powell House, including property immediately to the south. By the second meeting in May, Phila Landmarks had taken a $12,000 mortgage from the Philadelphia Saving Funds Society. The remaining funds needed for closing were raised through 75 separate donations and dues from 84 members, which included funds raised through the Civic Club and the NSCDA, along with a $10,000 gift from Mr. and Mrs. Cyrus H.K. Curtis. Frances Ann Wister was immediately elected the first president of Phila Landmarks, a position she held for the remaining 25 years of her life. She now had a second passion distinct from the orchestra, Philadelphia Preservation. She organized several ladies' fundraising committees, which held annual tea, bridge, and garden parties, and several needlepoint exhibitions. Through the depths of the Great Depression, these women raised enough funds to pay off the Powell House mortgage, secure the house, install a caretaker, and start restoration and furnishing of the main rooms as they worked toward opening it as a house museum. 
1932, in association with the Committee of 1926, the group that oversees historic Strawberry Mansion, Francis Ann helped devise three intricate historic tours that brought sightseers from Philadelphia through Fairmount Park out to the main line, over to Germantown. They visited every significant extent historic house and building. In 1938, Frances Ann contacted her friend A. Atwater Kent, who had purchased the Betsy Ross house the year prior, and she convinced him to purchase the original 1825 John Haviland-designed Franklin Institute building on 7th Street. It was being threatened with demolition after the Institute moved to a new building on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. Kent bought the building, and then he gifted both the Betsy Ross house and the Franklin Institute to the city for use as public institutions. In 1940, Frances Ann took title of the Germantown Summer Refuge built by her great-great-great-grandfather from a group of 35 Worcester heirs called the Grumblethorpe Association. She repeated the same formula of setting up fundraising committees to pay for restoration work and donated the house to Phila Landmarks as its second official house museum. Other sites she worked to save, the Second Bank of the United States, the Deschler Morris House, the Bluebell Inn in Cobbs Creek, Uppsala, and Elfrith's Alley. No matter where her focus, Frances Ann never lost sight of what was going on in the Powell House neighborhood and its nearby neighbor Independence Hall. To increase public awareness of the history of the area, she devised new tours called the Philadelphia Pilgrimage, which brought visitors to the sites around Independence Hall. She became a founding member and vice president of the Independence Hall Association in 1942. She was 68 years old. This was the organization which helped establish Independence National Historic Park. Frances Ann had a vision for the area. She even had an idea for a new name. Back in 1931, a young architect named Sidney E. Martin had been tasked with writing a history that would accompany the published Philadelphia survey. Martin received a letter from Frances Ann in 1932 questioning why, in his written history, he hadn't utilized the name she had suggested. The name was Society Hill. It had been inspired by the Free Society of Traders, a group of English Quakers who had purchased the original land from William Penn. Of course, we know the outcome of this discussion. The neighborhood was rechristened Society Hill, and its green spaces, historic sites, and high-end housing is the result of a specific urban renewal project under the Federal Housing Act of 1954. While other major cities tore down entire neighborhoods, this project was unique in its targeted rehabilitation to preserve historical character. Independence National Historic Park was established in 1951, and the National Park Service preservationist Charles Peterson, later known as the Godfather of Preservation, was in town to inject an early republic ambiance into City Planning Commissioner Edmund Bacon's vision of a very modern city featuring brutalist architecture along with open greenways. Frances Ann Wister's tireless advocacy and her vision of Society Hill throughout the 1930s and 40s had set the stage for everything that came after. In late 1936, Frances Ann Wister was presented the highest award given to a woman in Philadelphia, 
the Gimbel Award. More than 500 prominent Philadelphia club women attended the luncheon, including Frances Ann's mother. Even her cousin Owen Wister showed up. Previous recipients of this cherished award were Amelia Earhart, Eleanor Roosevelt, Mary Louise Curtis Bach, and other familiar women. In Phila Landmark's 10th annual report in 1941, Frances Ann lamented historic houses lost when time or money had run out. She wrote, You will see from this list that places of interest and importance are to be found in every section of Philadelphia. But how long they will be found is another question. How many years will it take to educate the public to preserve landmarks? In 1949, she and the rest of the Worcester family presented the Victorian home at Belfield Avenue and Worcester Street to the city as a seven-acre addition to Worcester Woods Park. Because of all her center city activities, Frances Ann moved to 1112 Spruce Street in order to be closer. In addition to her work with the orchestra and city preservation, she had developed the hobby of writing. She wrote many articles for the Germantown Crier, including A Wakefield Bride Comes to Germantown about her grandmother, Fanny Kemble and Butler Place about her aunt, and even The Army Then Proceeded to That Unfortunate Place Called Germantown. The work for which she is most remembered today is 25 Years of the Philadelphia Orchestra, 1900-1925, a meticulously researched tome which is essential to anyone wanting to understand the history of that orchestra. When Ella Eustace Worcester Haynes, her younger sister, penned Reminiscences of a Victorian Child in 1953, she wrote, quote, Visiting old places is all but a mania with her. She never takes time out to have a good time as the rest of us would know it. Her days are spent in hard toil from early morning to midnight. I think she is the strongest woman ever born. Frances Ann was 79 at the time. Miss Frances Ann Worcester died on 17 March 1956 at Hahnemann Hospital. She was 81 years old. She had served 44 years as president of the Women's Committee for the Philadelphia Orchestra. She was also a member of the Board of Trustees, First Unitarian Church, chair of the Uppsala Foundation. Uppsala Mansion is at 6430 Germantown. One history wag called it the historic house where nothing happened. Vice President of the Independence Hall Association, Vice Presidents of the Descendants of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence, Member of the Committee of Seventy, Members of the Colonial Dames of America, and Member of the Pennsylvania and Germantown Historical Societies. The Philadelphia Orchestra was her great love, and she left the organization more than $100,000 when she died, along with $20,000 to the First Unitarian Church and $25,000 to Priestley House at 266 West Tulpahocken Street, along with money to nieces and nephews and grandnieces and grandnephews. In 1987, the Worcester Quartet was named in her honor and continues to play all over the country, attracting guest artists like Alicia De La Roca and Yo-Yo Ma. Unlike her in-your-face lifestyle, her final resting place is hiding in plain sight in Section J, Lot 233. You can use your GPS to find it or have a guide pointed out to you. 
Her stone simply says, Francis Ann Wister, November 26th, 1874, March 17th, 1956. Now, with spring just around the corner, lots of activities are occurring at the cemeteries. Both live and virtual tours are available for the curious. You can get a list at the laurelhillcemetery.org slash events, but I'll give you a little clue. There are two hotspots and storied plots tours coming up at Laurel Hill Cemetery in March on Saturday the 12th at 10 a.m. and Thursday the 17th at 10 a.m. That is the general tour. It's sort of an introductory tour for people who have never been to Laurel Hill before. There's a similar tour at West Laurel Hill. It's called Sacred Spaces and Storied Places, and that is on Sunday, March 26th at 1 p.m. Special tours, you bet. There's one for St. Patrick's Day. It's uh, five days early. It's on Saturday the 12th at 1 p.m., but you will learn about some of the Irish inhabitants of Laurel Hill Cemetery. And then, one of my favorites, Classy Broads and Daring Dames. That's on Sunday the 20th at 1 p.m. That's one you do not want to miss. There are some virtual tours. The Virtual Horticultural Series has two meetings in March on Thursday the 10th at 6.30 p.m. It's called Big Trees Equals Big Benefits. And then on Thursday the 24th at 6.30 p.m. Unique Gardens of Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Finally, the Virtual Boneyard Bookworms meets on Thursday the 31st at 6 p.m. via Zoom. So lots of things. Activities are picking up at the cemeteries. Also, don't forget the on-demand virtual online tours at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Download the app. It will take you from either the gatehouse or the pedestrian entrance off Kelly Drive for a nice about 90-minute tour around the cemetery. And with that same app, if you hit the events icon at the bottom, it's shaped like a calendar, you can see all of the upcoming programs for the next month or two. Now, there's something new. It's a virtual tour of West Laurel Hill Cemetery from the Barmouth entrance off the Kidwood Trail to the Pencoid entrance off Writer's Ferry Road. As I write this, I'm not sure where its final home will be for you to access. For now, email me, joe at joelex.net. I will send you the link, and you can use this to guide you through that half mile or so. It's about 40, 43, 44 minutes long, and it's going to remind you a lot of the podcast. I try to get a lot of cool information there. If you're a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, there's a members-only podcast I've already done for this year. It's one of two that I have planned. As a member, you also get special live tours, as well as discounts on all tours, and discounts at the online gift shop and the actual gift shop in the gatehouse at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Let's get back to the podcast. Believe it or not, there is a third Wister sister, Ella Eustace Wister, given her mother's maiden name as her middle name. She was born at her grandmother and grandfather Eustace's home in Milton, Massachusetts in August 1879. 
Before she was 24 hours old, an adult had placed her in a large chair where her sister Frances, five years old, accidentally sat on her. In her autobiography, she wrote, Thus early, it would appear, do older sisters establish their authority. When her younger brother John Caspar, called Jack, came along a few years later, they became fast playmates. Unlike her sisters, she did not seem to harbor any musical gifts, and she lived an uneventful childhood, which she recalls with fondness in reminiscences of a Victorian child. She came out as a debutante in 1898, and her time was soon filled with parties and male admirers. She found her life mate when she was introduced to Diedrich Jansen Jan Haynes by Emily Pepper. Haynes proposed to her in March 1904. They were married in the library at Worcester House in October of the same year by a Unitarian minister. He was 33, she was 22. Frances Ann was the maid of honor. Jan Haynes was a distant relation. His mother was Margaret Vaux Wistar. He was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Engineering School and an engineer with the United Gas Company, which had been founded in 1882. In 1903, the company owned most of the stock of the Equitable Illuminating Gas Light Company, which operated the Philadelphia Gas Works. Ella and Jan were together through good times and hard times until his death in 1943. As a young man, Jan had ranched in Wyoming with his cousin named George Harrison under the tutelage of Boney Ernest, a legendary westerner. A lot of Philadelphia men went out and spent time with Boney Ernest. Almost immediately after marriage, Jan and Ella moved to Des Moines, Iowa, where he was manager of a company plant. They settled into their new home on the day that Theodore Roosevelt was elected president, and they lived the first 18 months in an apartment while their house was being built. Over the next eight years, they had four sons, all of whom, following in the Worcester male tradition, served in the military during World War II. Caspar Worcester, or Cap, in 1905. He went into the insurance business. He was born in the apartment. All the other boys were born in the house. William Worcester, or Bill, in 1908. He was a frail and sickly child at birth, but after attending Wharton University, he became a well-known author, playwright, and screenwriter. His most famous work was Command Decision, which ran for 409 performances on Broadway in 1947-1948. Clark Gable starred in the film. Bill is buried in Washington, D.C., and he does have his own Wikipedia page. Diedrich Jansen Jr., or Dutch, in 1911. He became a physician. He served in the Pacific Theater during the war. He is buried in Minnesota. John Wister, or Johnny, born in 1912. He also became a physician, but he was captured by the Japanese at the fall of Corregidor. He died in 1944 and has a cenotaph in the family plot overlooking the river at Laurel Hill Cemetery. In 1906, Jen built a home on Grand Avenue in Des Moines, and they stayed there until 1928. Ella wrote that the cultural opportunities in Iowa were surprisingly broad. The Women's Club brought authors of worldwide fame, including English poets and authors John Drinkwater and John Macefield. There was a civic concert series where they heard soprano Amelita Galakirchi, pianist Ignacy Paderewski, and violinist Fritz Kreisler. 
all of the current Broadway shows made their way to Des Moines eventually. And on another memorable occasion, Ellis said, quote, meeting Helen Keller was something to cherish forever. I never felt so small in all my life as when this great woman took my hand and spoke my name, end quote. She was also delighted to find a Unitarian church with a woman minister, Reverend Mary Augusta Safford, who became a lifelong friend. You can also read about Mary Augusta Safford on her Wikipedia page. In 1914, Ella Eustace Wister Haynes decided she would be an author. She quickly found that she was not very good at writing things that magazines thought people wanted to read. For six years, with 18 months out for domestic war work, she submitted her work to local newspapers and national magazines, and it was rejected. Finally, in 1920, three of her pieces, Human Interest Stories, were purchased for $30 by Successful Farming and published, confirming that she might be able to make a go of it as writing for a career. In her autobiography, Ellis said, quote, There was never a time when I was not writing stories, often only in my mind. And for six years I struggled, sending out story after story, mournfully receiving each manuscript back, often with great speed. End quote. After her initial publishing success, the doors seemed to open, and another farm paper, People's Popular Monthly, gave her a correspondence column called Friendly Folk, as they bought several of her stories. She then wrote newspaper fiction and several serial stories with names like Angel Wings and Her Husband's Friends. Sometime around 1926, she realized that she was making good money with her writing. But, as was common in the 1920s, her husband hated her writing. She actually says in her book, quote, he hated my writing, end quote. She notes, during a whole year I stopped writing, though it is more truthful to say that I stopped sending my work out. Unfortunately, that was a time when I really needed money, end quote. In 1924, Jan lost his job with the United Gas Improvement Company, which started him on a downward course. The year 1928 was a turning point in their lives. Quote, Life cannot all be rosy. Shadows fell, and our shadow was ever my husband's health. He had a nervous condition that could not tolerate strain, and when business or domestic issues worried him, he all but reached the breaking point of emotion. Touches of this trouble had been his probably all his life. In the winter of 1928, it became acute. End quote. Jen had invested heavily in Midwestern real estate and was caught land poor and overborrowed at all the banks. I think it is safe to say that he was suffering from severe depression and anxiety. Ella knew that she could not carry on alone in Iowa. She decided it was time to move the family back to Philadelphia after living away for 14 years. Jan's brother, Robert, stepped in to help. He took Jan and Dietrich Jr. to Europe for nearly a year and a hoped-for rest cure. While he was gone, Ella, Billy, and Johnny moved into Worcester, while Jan and Cap, when they came back, lived at Wick in Germantown. This was the home of Jan's ancestors. Wick House, also known as the Haynes House or Hans Millen House, is in the 6,000 block of Germantown Avenue. 
Its earliest owner was Hans Millen, a Quaker who came from Germany sometime before 1689. His granddaughter Catherine married Kaspar Wistar, a glassmaker. Their grandson was physician and anatomist Kaspar Wistar, after whom the genus Wisteria is named. In the next generation, Margaret Wistar, daughter of Catherine and Caspar, married Reuben Haynes, a brewer and merchant from Burlington County, New Jersey. During the Battle of Germantown, Wick served as a hospital. In 1825, Wick was chosen to receive and entertain General Lafayette on his farewell visit to America. Jan's father, Robert Bowne Haynes, was rather frail in health and decided early in life that outdoor living would be his salvation, so he became a respected horticulturalist. Wick stayed in the same family for nine generations until 1973. The two-and-a-half-acre site is now a National Historic Landmark house, garden, and farm. The origin of the name Wick is still somewhat mysterious. In the early 1930s, Jan and Ella were no longer living together. She writes in her memoir that from 1928 to 1934, quote, the whole family, so to speak, hung on a hook, largely supported by family on both sides, end quote. She spent every morning writing after getting her four kids off to school. Her afternoons and evenings were devoted to family and home. Ella published her first novel, Mysterious Sweetheart, in 1929. Talk about purple prose. Paul's eyes rested upon sweethearts hungrily, longingly. She wasn't his sister. She was no blood relation or connection at all, yet. Ella's idea for this story came from a family member who described a blood-dripping dagger that appeared to her in a dream. She said the vividness of the isolated incident started me thinking in terms of plot. Mysterious Stranger was followed by Lady Slipper in 1929 and Mad Honeymoon in 1930. They sold moderately well, but not well enough to get the family out of debt. A friend recognized her dilemma and also her true talents. She told her, Stop writing. Use your personality. That is your real gift. She took a position with the Public Relations Department at the Philadelphia Electric Company, which had been incorporated in 1902, with its origins going back to the Brush Electric Light Company of Philadelphia, formed in 1881. It was here that in her late 40s, Ella Eustace Wister Haynes blossomed as a professional woman. A friend of her husband, William G. Taylor, had become president of the Philadelphia Electric Company and gladly hired Ella. For the next 20 years, as director of the Educational Film Service of the Philadelphia Electric Company, she was in charge of films and lecturing on the history, achievement, and advantages of electrical service. Now, she started her job by visiting church groups three times weekly and displaying small electrical appliances. She showed a rather long industrial film called His Spirit Still Lives, which presented a resurrected Benjamin Franklin returning to Philadelphia in modern times and visiting various industrial plants, marveling at their work and output. At home, things were looking up. In 1934, the three older boys married, and Ella saw fit to write, quote, 
I want to pay tribute to my daughters-in-law, all three. No woman was ever blessed with the girls her sons selected. Ella considered 1934 the high point of their lives. Jan was back working. Bill was hitting it big with his first novel called Slim, which he wrote at night while he was, quote, risking his life electrifying the Pennsylvania Railroad. Diedrich graduated from medical school with high marks, and Johnny was in medical school at the University of Iowa. But in November of 1935, Jan became very ill, and he underwent three operations at Abington Hospital with 18 weeks as an inpatient. He was never really well again. The family debts had gotten bad enough that they sold their house in Des Moines. Ella was becoming a major force at Philadelphia Electric. Her initial visits to industrial plants were expensive and unwieldy. A visit required two men and a truck up to half a day to haul the 35-millimeter film projector and screen to a site. Ella quickly changed the equipment to manageable 16-millimeter portable films, and she started securing audiences in clubs, schools, and lodges throughout the area. This was at a time when electric companies were trying to convince Americans to make the big switch from gas to electricity. It was Mrs. Haynes' job to help convince them that electricity would make their lives easier and safer. Often she was out seven nights a week promoting electricity and many afternoons, too. She recalled one Sunday night program at the Polish Cathedral in Frankfurt where a priest stood beside her and translated every word she said into Polish. With the passing of the National Labor Relations Act, also known as the Wagner Act, in 1935, she could no longer get her union men to work on Sundays past their 40 hours a week. Since she was an executive, there was no limit to the hours that she had to work. She booked herself into synagogue, into black churches, and various ethnic groups around the city. German, Swedish, Scotch, Armenian, Norwegian, Chinese... Once in Music Fund Hall, she had a large non-English speaking Russian group. She said, quote, it was a sound film. I'm sure they did not get a thing out of it. But afterwards, we were escorted to a long table and served with the best tea I ever drank and extraordinary cakes. Many groups invited us to lunch or dinner, and we always accepted. (laughs) No wonder we gained weight. For most of the food was excellent, with the exception of church suppers. Sometimes they presented at private clubs in the suburbs, where they were made to wait outside the meeting hall until private business had been conducted, sometimes not starting their programs until after 10 p.m. In the early days, their cars did not have heaters, and she told stories of being stuck in snowstorms or with flat tires or other car breakdowns. In summer, she showed her films, quote, in rooms where windows had never been opened and where the audience had never had baths. End quote. She seemed to thrive on the hardships. In fact, Ella enjoyed so many of the clubs where she spoke that she personally joined many of them. When she retired, she belonged to 31 clubs as a dues-paying member. What was she selling in all of these visits? Nothing but the Philadelphia Electric Company. It was a goodwill program. In essence, she was selling herself to the people of Philadelphia, and she did a wonderful job. She would show up at a meeting to be greeted with a big smile and the declaration, here comes Philadelphia Electric. 
she developed a large and important color film library. Many were travel films supplied by railroads, airways, and steamship lines. From Hollywood, she obtained films about historic characters like Washington and Lincoln. She featured everything and anything she could get about Thomas Edison. The company loved what she was doing, but it was exhausting work. Now, Ella and Jan got back together. They lived in an apartment in the Hotel Gladstone at 11th and Pine. But Diedrich Jansen Haynes died in March 1943. This was a year before his son was killed during the war. He was interred in the Worcester family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Ella retired from her grueling job in 1949. She was 70 years old and had been going nearly non-stop for 20 years. She had accumulated a good pension and she continued to attend department picnics and Christmas parties. She moved from the Gladstone to the Drake at 15th and Spruce where she lived for many years until going to a nursing home in Flowertown. In the year that she retired, she privately published a book called their state of mind letters received during world war ii from caspar wister haynes william wister haynes diedrich jansen haynes jr md and my nephews owen jones wister and charles kemble butler wister i have not located a copy of that book ella's friends and family convinced her to write her memoirs in the early 1950s I have a feeling that it didn't take too much convincing, given her love for writing. Reminiscences of a Victorian Child was privately published in a limited edition in September 1953. Laurel Hill Cemetery has a copy of it in the archive for guides who, like me who use it for research. Ours is an autographed copy, signed, Your Devoted Ella Wister Haynes, February 5th. 1955. Now, while a lot of it is just a detailing of who did what and where, much of it is a good, entertaining read. After finishing the autobiography proper, complete with many personal photographs, she took a turn for the serious in the afterword, which begins on page 166. She wrote a letter to four granddaughters and a great niece that bears sharing. I believe this letter could have been easily written by any of the three remarkable Worcester sisters. Dear girls, weeks ago I was certain that I had written the very last of my story, but the friend who keeps my literary conscience reminded me that I have left no special message to those who have just taken on the full armor of life and will profit most by the achievement of the pioneer women before them and, incidentally, the grandmother who started life as a Victorian child. Uh, perhaps you have been saying under your breath, but still quite politely and even tolerantly, what a mess you have handed us. It's going to be an awful job to get things going right again. But of course we will. However, we can't help feeling sorry for you poor benighted ones. You missed so much. I know how you feel, so I release the following bulleting of the accomplishments of my mother's generation and mine. Here is what we accomplished. First, suffrage for women. Not perfect yet, for it will be up to you to win equal rights, equal pay for equal work, etc. We still lack these essentials, but we are hard at work in Congress and in the legislatures. Someday it will come to you. And girls, it was mighty hard work. For when I found out that I did not own my own children, my own money, or even my own clothes, 
I knew that I had to get possession of them, and I did. The suffrage campaign was not a joke, beginning long before my day at Seneca Falls, New York in 1848. It was a long, grueling battle. Next in importance, we succeeded in opening the door of the business and professional world for women. The World Wars did the rest. Of course, even in my mother's day, women could be teachers, nurses, librarians, and a very few became doctors. Women could be actresses and musicians and write novels. They could spend endless hours behind counters and in kitchens. But I witnessed the acceptance of women on magazines and newspapers, secretaries, cashiers in banks, public accountants, and bookkeepers. Women engineers, railroad conductors, taxi drivers, chemists, architects all appeared in my day. The men began to need us desperately when armies went overseas. But, and here is the big, big but, I will say that is all in uppercase letters, did we get equal pay for our work? We did not. We do not now, even though every line of industry is open to us, in factory, shop, and office, and we are more than eagerly welcomed in the armed forces of our USA. I suspect, dear girls, that you have just taken all these opportunities for granted. They would be open to you when you came marching along with a college degree. They will be, all but the equal pay and the necessary removal of many restrictive statutes on the laws of our land. I am not squealing in self-pity. I'm more than satisfied. I'm happy. I did the best I could in a hard battle to earn a living. I am thankful for everything if I made it easier for you. I only want you to extend to the women who have gone before you just a debt of gratitude and to finish the job. Granny. Until her death on Valentine's Day of 1969, Ella Wister Haynes was always looking for things to do to make things better. Her obituary identified her as a, quote, former writer and lecturer for the Philadelphia Electric Company, end quote. She is interred next to her husband and near a cenotaph for her son killed in action at Laurel Hill Cemetery, just a few feet from her sister, Mary Channing Wister. The longest lived of the three Worcester sisters. She was born during the reign of Victoria and died during the administration of Richard Nixon. In mid-March, the next episode of Biographical Bites from Bala will feature feminist and pacifist Hannah Clothier Hull, one of the founders and leaders of the Women's Peace Party and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and sister of Hall of Fame tennis player William Clothier. That should be available for download on March 11th. The April edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, will be an oversized doozy. It is called Boys Will Be Boys. It tells the legend of Philadelphia's master politician, Boys Penrose, who showed a minimal amount of moderation in everything that he did. I'll also talk about his three brothers, Surgeon Charles Bingham Penrose, who who medical people will recognize as inventor of the Penrose drain, and mining engineers Richard and Spencer Penrose. It's quite a family. The podcast promises to be monumental. You will find it wherever you listen to podcasts on March 25th.
Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the very small lot across the street. There are only a few spaces left. If you can't find any other place to park, we do not recommend street parking on Ridge. You can come onto the property and find a place to park where other cars can get around you. It's uh, There are quite a few places you might be able to find to park on the property itself. West Laurel Hill Cemetery, on the other hand, is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballack-Kinwood. It has parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is probably to take the Scepter Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue and then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from April to October. We're getting back to our long hours soon. 7 a.m. until 5 p.m. November through March. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. When you come to one of the historic tours at Laurel Hill Cemetery or West Laurel Hill Cemetery, we would like you to follow current CDC guidelines regarding masks when you join us. And we still have pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at the laurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here is more to satisfy your curiosity. laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. You follow us on Instagram. You'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and our activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hotspots and Storied Plots, Virtual Tour number one and number two both give you an overview. And All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Also, podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is available as a video podcast on YouTube. It's called The Birds and the Bees. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some Inside the Mausoleum visits, and at least two members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. The first members-only podcast for this year is already out. If you are not a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, go ahead and join and someone will send you the link so you can hear the extra special podcast. Remember, they may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at joe at joelex.net. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I use for the podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well.
first and foremost for the bibliography for this podcast is Reminiscences of a Victorian Child by Ella Eustace Wister Haynes. She published it privately in 1953. It is invaluable. It is also rather hard to find a copy. I know of two places you can get it, one of which is not accessible to you. That is the Cemetery Library. But there is a copy at LaSalle University Library that you would be able to look at. For Mary Channing Wister, speaking of LaSalle, I used an essay by Eric M. Augenstein, Mary Channing Wister, 1870-1913, An Unknown Legend. It was published in 1998 on the LaSalle website. It's People in Places number 15. If you want the Earl, it is digitalcommons.lasalle.edu slash people underline places. This is number 15. Francis Ann Wister, Bob Delp, Francis Ann Wister, 1874-1956, also 1998. People and Places, the digitalcommons.lasalle.edu slash people underline places, number 14. Also, the website Hidden Philadelphia, Mickey Herr, H-E-R-R. Francis Ann Wister, Philadelphia's patron saint of historic preservation. That was published on 5 March 2018. And Ella Eustace Wister Haynes, Kristen Terranova. Ella Eustace Wister Haynes, 1879-1969, published in 1998 online. People and Places, digitalcommons.lasalle.edu, slash people, underline places. This is number 13. Stay safe, stay well. Maybe I will see you at the cemetery.